Hey, this is Lady C. Hey, this is JT. Welcome to The Critical Thought. And a lot of times when you're on YouTube, people will find your channel and they may not know that you have older videos. And a lot of people will come out and they don't have time to go back to every single thing that you produced. So we wanted to introduce one of our old classic videos. Mm -hmm. It's still relevant to this day because as we receive information from people, they tend to leave the religion for the same reason why we left some years ago. And so we're gonna reintroduce this classic. Yes, it really uh, highlights uh, the reason why we left and the reason why others leave as well. Uh, there was three things that really drove us literally out of this religion and we wanted to just share it with everyone again. All right, we hope that you enjoyed this classic. You know, the question was asked, you know, why did we leave? And uh, that's a question a lot of people often ask. JT, why did y'all guys leave? I mean, you were doing so well. You know, you was a local elder, former Bethelite. Uh, you was involved in circuit activities, regional convention activities. You know, why did you leave? And people leave the organization for different reasons. Some people, they are disfellowship. They may be involved in adultery, fornication. They end up getting this fellowship. Uh, such a person many times will come back. You know, they realize I did something wrong. Let me go back to the congregation. Uh, you have people who often leave because they are discouraged. Uh, as an elder, that was a common thing that you would find when you would do shepherding calls. The friends were simply discouraged. They would say, you know, Brother JT, you know, I, I just can't keep up. So basically because of the demands of the organization, people can't run fast enough, jump high enough. You know, and, and they just, they wear out, they tire out, and they just give up. Now, it's interesting that during that particular time, sometimes people will begin to re-examine the teachings, and that will oftentimes leave them not going back. Then you have those who will tell you they left because of a fallout they had with someone in the congregation. You know, the brothers are not loving, the congregation is not warm. You, you hear that a lot. In fact, a lot of the... Uh, podcasts and a lot of the things you'll see on the internet when people relate their personal experience about why they left, you often hear people say, you know, the brothers of my congregation, they just weren't loving. I didn't see the love that Jesus said you find and, and on and on and on. Well, for me, <laughs> that was not the case at all. I'll be honest with you. I, it wasn't because I had a fallout with Brother Johnson or, you know, Sister Jones, you know, we didn't get along or the circuit overseer and this and that or the brothers weren't using me. That was not the reason I left. The reason I left was strictly for doctrinal reasons. And as I mentioned in the last podcast, there were basically three doctrinal changes that the society made that literally made me stop in my tracks and I had to take a step back and re-examine what we had been taught. The first one was the teaching of the generation of 1914. Now, why that's of interest to me was because I used to have a talk. In fact, I got this talk when I was a minister of servant at Bethel. Uh, one of the brothers who was a mentor for me helped me put this talk together. And he was a former district overseer, had been called to Bethel, and he worked down in the service department. So the brother was, he was, he was known as a society troubleshooter. The society was sending him out to congregations around the United States. And at that time, he was actually able to remove brothers right there on the spot and reassign elders right there in that congregation. So he was what they referred to as a society troubleshooter. But he took the time, and a lot of uh, African-American brothers uh, interestingly, there were certain African-American brothers at Bethel, they would bring other brothers underneath their wing. 
And fortunately, I was one that was actually a brother. He brought me on his wing. And so this man taught me things about the organization at a level that the average Jehovah's Witness just wouldn't be exposed to. And so as a ministerial servant, uh, it was amazing the things that, that he taught me, you know, how the organization runs. And he had a basic principle. He said, he said, JT, always do these two things. Love the friends and make sure that you know organizational procedures like the back of your hand. He said, you might not be liked, but you'll always be right because you can quote something from the society's publication. And because that's the problem that often happens in congregations. Uh, you could have a body of elders that's disagreeing over something. And the basic position of Jehovah's Witnesses, especially as elders, is if a brother can bring out something in print, then the rest of the elders, they have to concede this is the direction we're going. So as he always encouraged me, you know, learn what the society has in print. And so he had one of those, what they call a captain's bag that a lot of the circuit and district overseers you know, uh, used to have years ago, big old bag. Uh, and he had one of those. And he actually helped me put together a little portfolio of different articles. When you go on a shepherding call and you're dealing with a sister or brother who got children, you know, this is what you share with them if you're dealing with someone on this issue, health issues. You know. And so all these articles, and, and, and he showed me, you know, make a little index for it, and so you can flip back and forth, and you can, have the, you can have the reference material right there at your hand. So when I rolled out of Bethel, you know, I had a little portfolio that was probably better or just as good as some circuit overseer. I just didn't have body of all those letters. But in terms of shepherding material, and how to work with the friends, encourage the friends. You know, I knew how to do that. And because that was what he had stressed. He says, love the friends and make sure that you know organizational procedures like the back of your hand. And so I, be, I began to see how that worked. And so when the organization came out with the article on the generation of 1914, I had a public talk that I had given. It was one, it was one of my favorite talks. And in that particular uh, article, I incorporated, with the help of him, he showed me you always incorporated articles into your talks, keep them fresh, you know, change your, your examples out, change your illustrations out, you know, don't be giving the same one you gave 10, 12 years ago. But within that particular talk, that public talk, there's a part that I would incorporate the May 15th, 1984 Watchtower. Now, some people, uh, some of you may remember what that article was about. It was called The Generation of 1914 That Will Not Die Out. Now, if you take a look at those samples you have there, you'll see that on the cover of that magazine, there's a number of older individuals. I basically knew all of those because they're all Bethelites. They're what we call the senior Bethelites. They had been at Bethel 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, these guys go way back. And so when the picture was taken of all these older Bethelites, you know, and that's the thing at Bethel, you get to see people who are actually on the magazines or in the magazines, they take their pictures. And so you would go around, I saw you in the magazine, saw you in the magazine. And so this particular article, when it came out in May 15, 1984, it went into an in-depth examination of Jesus' words, this generation. And if you read the article, you'll see it points out very, very clearly that this generation will not die. So I had worked into this, I had worked this little part into my talk where I, in the middle of the talk, I would slow it down a little bit, pause, and uh, I would say, you know, it's very good, it's a very good feeling to know that I will never grow old and die. And then I would slow it down a little bit. I say, you know, some of you may be saying, well, well, brother JT, how can you make such a statement with such certainty? And then I would reach down the podium and I would pull up my May 15, 1984, watch down, I hold up to the congregation so you can see all, so all the friends can see it. I said, the reason why I can make this statement with such confidence, brothers, is because the faithful and the discreet slave, 
the governing body, under the direction of Holy Spirit, they had been helped to understand something that no one else understands, the deeper things of God. And one of the things they have been helped to understand is the identity of the generation that will not die out. And as you know, brothers, this generation is getting up into age. So this was basically a standard teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses for decades all around the world. I mean, I've stood before thousands of people. Other elders stood before thousands, circuit overseers, thousands of people. Publishers, pioneers have gone to people's homes and told millions and millions, probably billions of people, this generation. Now, it's interesting when they changed it. The Watchtower changed the teaching of the generation. And, and I tell people, when you examine critically the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses, one of the things that you have to do is you have to put it on a timeline. Because only by putting it on a timeline can you really see the critical thinking questions that you need to ask. When the Watchtower first started out, teaching the generation of 1914, they said, this teaching is based on people who were old enough to understand the events of 1914. So the Watchtower started out with something like persons about 15 years old. They will understand that what life was like in 1912, 1913, and now with 1914, they see the changes in the world. And so it would be this generation, these people would not die out. Now, what the Watchtower did and what the society did, they, they, put, they, they built a trap for themselves because what they did, they set a time frame. Anybody who can count can figure if a person is 15 years old and the Bible says he's only going to live to get about 70 or 80, it's not rocket science to figure out that the society is letting us know that within this generation, before these folks die, this system's going to end. And so then all of a sudden, a few years later, you go back and you look at the timeline, what you'll see is they change like, well, the person was maybe 10 years old. Of course, now they add five more years on it. And then after a while, it went from like 10 years old down to babies, people who were born in 1914. They were, that's the generation. And so when they made the change to what's called the overlapping generation, when you put this on a timeline, it's, it's almost laughable. You start out with 15, you go to 10, you go to five, you go to babies. Then now you simply jump over to a whole new generation. And so this is the kind of stuff that when you sit at, look at it critically, you see that there's something wrong here. Now, you know that somebody in the writing department, when they was floating this new thing about the lapping gener overlapping generation, you know somebody was sitting in the writing department like, now I know y'all not going to try to run with that. Why don't we just tear the friends? We don't know what generation Jesus was talking about. And instead, brothers, let's focus on putting forth the fruitage of the Spirit. You know, you know somebody, you know somebody said that. You know, <laughs> we don't know what it is. Let's, don't, let's stop playing around like we know. Because you look at it now, they've had like four or five, you know, four or five, almost a half a dozen tweaks on it right now. Because what's happening is people understand basic concepts. You see, Jesus was talking to who? Jesus was talking to basic people. He was talking to common people. He was talking to farmers, fishermen, people who were goat herders. So when they heard the word generation, they, there was no such concept as overlapping generation. In fact, not one Jehovah's Witness for the last 25, 30, 40, 50 years ever thought of the overlapping generation when they heard the word generation. I saw a picture once. It was, it was a picture of, the, of the, the Queen of England, and a picture of Charles and his son and the new baby. And it said, how many generations you see in this picture? And 
Anybody with half a brain know you're looking at basically four generations because that's the understanding that the average person has. So when the watchtower starts creating their own definitions to words, overlapping, Jesus wasn't talking about overlapping generation, but you need that if you, you know, keep on putting forth this type of uh, teaching. And so when they changed it, I was like, oh my goodness, they really don't know what they're talking about. Then after that, they had a change on the sheep and the goat. Now, anybody who's been a Jehovah's Witness knows that when the circuit overseer would come in, he always stressed that what we're doing, friends, is we're helping to separate the sheep from the goat. And then the elders, they would pick up on it and they would put it into their talks and service being part that, brothers, when we go knock on doors with the help of the angels, we are separating the sheep from the goat. That's what we taught. We taught it as a teaching of God. We never taught it as an opinion of the writing department. We said this is a teaching of the Bible. Well, it turns out the Watchtower comes up like, uh, <laughs> we know we told y'all when y'all go in field service, y'all separating the sheep and the goat, but we need to revise that. You're not really separating the sheep from the goat. That's going to happen later on. And so it's like, how do you teach something for 50, 60, 70 years, and then with the stroke of a pen, you just wipe it out? And so then, of course, the third one, the alternative service. That alternative service is when people are asked by their country to go into the military, the draft, as it were. And they say, no, I, I'm a conscientious objector. I don't believe in going to war. And so in a lot of countries, they recognize that they may have citizens who, for conscious reasons, don't want to serve in, you know, as, in the military. So they set up what's called alternative service, which means you now can do a job at the hospital or work on a road crew, but you won't get paid. And so you do that in lieu of going to jail. Well, this is what the Watchtower taught for years. They taught that it, if you are Jehovah's Witness and you're called, if you're 18-year-old Jehovah's Witness and you're called before the draft board, you would explain to them that you will not be accepting the alternative service job that work at the hospital because you're nothing, you're doing nothing but just substituting and you're not maintaining your neutrality. And so as Jehovah's Witnesses around the world, young men who went before draft boards and they were given the alternative of going to work in the military, not work in the military, but to work in the hospitals and so they turned it down and they went to jail. I remember we had a governing body member that got back from a zone visit and he'd been down to the Asian uh, Pacific countries during the zone visit. And he was relating the experience of how their brothers in certain countries that he visited, these guys serve 12 years. They get called up before the draft board. They come in. They say, are you going to take the alternative service job? No. They send them off to jail. At the end of their four years, they bring them back. Uh, you going to go to the army or are you going to take the alternative? No. They go back to jail. This is eight years. They bring them back sometimes a third time. Same question. You going to go serve in the army? You going to go serve in the alternative service? No. And they go back to jail again. So we're talking about a young man from 18 to 30 years of age. 30 years of age, he comes out of jail, he's a felon, he now will have a difficult time getting a job. Anybody who looks at any application, especially in the United States, down at the bottom, they got little boxes, have you ever been convicted of a felon? People who work in human resources, they'll tell you, if I see that box check, that is going to file 13. Now, it might not be legal to do that, but they do, because people who are felons, they're going to have a hard time getting employment. Well, the problem was, the society decided to change the teaching leaving thousands of young men all around the world languishing in prisons all around the world. Now, I'm thinking to myself, this is ridiculous because people's lives have been impacted by your teachings that you said were teachings of God. It's like Daniel in the lion's den. It's like the three Hebrew boys in the fire. That's what I'm going through for this teaching. 
and the teaching turned out not to be anything that the Bible ever supported. And this is people's lives. You, you, you can't jack with people's lives. One day you teach, this is what God says. Next day you're coming back, my bad. Now, I personally knew someone back in North Carolina who went to prison during the Vietnam War. In fact, his kids, when he was growing up, that was actually how we learned about this brother and got to know him. And so he came to be a brother that we knew. And I remember, you know, how he would often relate what happened, how that when he got his draft letter, him and his mom, they went to the body of elders and they asked, look, you know, uh, you know, would I be able to get into uh, any program or anything? What do you think? And of course, you know, the brothers told him, look, you know, right now the society's position is, is that you're going to have to go to prison or you're going to be dealt with by the congregation. But look, we got the circus here coming in a couple of weeks. Why don't we wait and see if he has any new information from the society? So, you know, when he would tell the story, you know, he waited and he waited and, and during the meeting that night, that Tuesday night, he said he just, his stomach was just in knots. So they were in the back room, they met with the circuit overseer, and he said, well, right now, brothers, as far as I know, you know, you're going to have to go to prison. He said, but what I can do, I can contact society, just, you know, I can contact them just to make sure. He said, we'll get together again on Thursday night after the meeting. So he said for the next two days, he couldn't hardly sleep. So when he gets back together on Thursday night at that particular time, because the way the meetings were structured for the visit the circuit overseer, um, Secretary says, I'm sorry. Society says, you know, what's in print, basically. And so he went to prison. Now, this particular brother, when they came out with this change, this man was serving as an elder. It crushed him. It really crushed him. And the reason why it crushed him was not only did the society change the teaching, and this is very important for any Jehovah's Witness who is listening to this broadcast, the society blamed the brothers who went to jail. That's amazing. I mean, you're talking about slapping somebody in the face. First, you come out and tell them, oh, <laughs> I know you went to jail for four years, but the Bible really didn't say you had to go to jail. Uh, well, the society basically said the reason you guys went to jail is because your conscience was so strict. And he was, uh, he, now he's, he's a crushed man. Because they blamed him for going to jail when that wasn't the case at all. He didn't go to jail because his conscience was too strict. He went to jail because the watchtower said, if you take this job as an alternative service job, you are not maintaining neutrality. Now, to add more insult to this, I mean, the society just keeps on piling insult on top of insult to these people. They didn't come up with an article. Did you suffer needlessly? You know, how do you feel? Do you feel that you suffered needlessly for God? Can you imagine somebody going to jail? They find out that they went to jail not because God or the Bible said so, but because some writers out of New York City, that's what they came up with and put in the magazine. They read it. They believed it. They applied it. They went to jail. And then to come out and be asked, uh, do you feel you suffered needlessly for God? No. No. The person will be like, no, I didn't suffer needlessly for God. I suffered needlessly for some guys in the writing department who thought this is what I need to be doing. And so this is, this, and so this is the kind of stuff that I tell people. When you stop and start asking critical thinking questions, you stand back and you're like, that don't sound something God would be involved in. God would not send people by the thousands to jail only to change his mind. And then when you find out that it had nothing to do with God, so basically, these guys could have gone and taken these jobs with no problem. Can you imagine, man, 
if a brother went before a draft board. He goes before a draft board, right? And he's standing there, and he's explaining, you know, very eloquently, you know, as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, as a Christian, you know, we won't take alternative service job because it's merely just a substitution, and I'm going to maintain my Christian neutrality and everything. And, you know, you got his mom and daddy standing over there, and they're all proud. Look at my son. He's taking a stand for the truth. Then you got some elders standing. Look at the brother. Brother, brother Jones is taking a stand for the truth. He's a good young man. Okay. He go to jail. He's sitting in jail for two weeks. New magazine come out. Can you imagine this guy like, uh, could I go back and talk to the draft board again? Then he wants to come back in front of the draft board. He's like, I know when I was here two weeks ago, I told you I couldn't take the alternative service job, but I got this new magazine from New York. Buffalo, watched out, governing body. They sent this new magazine, and it says I can take the job now. Is that job still open for alternative service? Can you imagine that? We're talking about playing with people's lives. And so... When you take a step back, you then begin to ask questions about other things. And then you see this similar pattern. And the pattern that you see is very simple. What you see are human opinions that have been elevated to divine status. And now it's become a requirement of God. In order to maintain your standing and your favor with God, you have to do ABC. Only for the turn out to have always been simply an opinion of humans. So this is what started us on this process of looking at what we had been taught. And as you, as you started digging, um, you know, I'll be honest with you, you know, I can see why the society does not want friends asking questions, digging into the history of the organization. Because once you start and you're like, man, this don't sound like nothing to God, God. This foundation can't be built on God. You begin to see it. And once as a, you know, as a, you know, as an elder, I realized, you know, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were telling the friends, it was just the opinion of the writing department. Just that, just that simple. And so that's what started us down this path. And so now, you know, I, I look at people and I look at the teachings and how they've been changed and all the changes they're making within the organization. And it's almost like a ship without a rudder now. I mean, it's, it's very unfortunate. But, uh, but that's basically what started us down that path of reexamining what we had been taught for years. And that's why, you know, you know our, our form that we have is not so much as to debate, you know, the Greek word of this and the verb tense of that. We, you know, there are sites out there, they'll, you know, they, they can debate that all day long, you know, what the Greek word is and what the Greek tense and the, the verb and the noun and the pronoun, all that kind of stuff. People can do it all day long. But at the end of the day, the question you got to ask yourself is, how does human get to elevate their opinions to divine status, expect me to live by it, teach it to others, and then five minutes later come back and say, oh, my bad. You can't do that. You can't do that. You know, the brothers at Buffalo, the writing department, governing body, whatever, you know, they might be very, very sincere because I can't read their heart, don't want to even start. But one thing becomes very obvious, that their teachings that they have, they absolutely have no idea what they're talking about. And instead of just being humble and saying, you know, we don't know, you know they decide to make an answer up. You know, I've always told people, I say, you know, the society would have probably been okay if they had stuck with doing basic Bible commentary, you know, offering this what we think the scripture means, this is how we think it's applied. But when they made the decision to climb up into the seat of Moses and announce that, you know, we speak for God, if you don't listen to our explanation, you know, you can't have a relationship with God. Once they made that decision to, to, to put themselves in that position, you know, it was all downhill because what that did, that then set them up. Where when you make a statement, you make a pronouncement, you don't get to go back and rewrite it over again. And, uh, and that's where the organization, unfortunately, we see more and more of. And so we encourage people, you know, 
take your time, ask the critical thinking questions. That's why I tell people all the time. I prefer to have questions I cannot answer. You know, people sometimes go, well, James, what do you think of this? JT, what do you think of this? JT, what do you think of I don't know. And so I will tell people, I prefer personally to have questions I cannot answer. I don't know the answer to them. Than to have answers that someone gives to me and says, you better not question the answer that I gave you. And so that's what we encourage people to do. Ask the critical thinking questions. Questions that you have to literally stop and be honest with the answers. And that's really what it boils down to is just being honest with yourself. Ask the critical thinking questions and be willing to accept what the answers are. Because if not, you're just fooling yourself. Ask the critical thinking questions. This program was sponsored by Critical Thinkers.